the um, bronze silicone. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Hey there, folks. How are you, my lovely bibliophiles? It's been a week and a half since we last spoke, and I'm sure a lot has happened for you, as have I. And so it's great to be back, great to be talking again, and I'm super excited to be talking about this week's book. But first, in book news, in the book world, what's been going on? What have you been reading? Um, I've been reading... My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. Funny because I'm literally talking about his book today. But anyways, that's besides the point. It's honestly, it's so good. I, it might be what I wanted out of this week's book. But we're, we'll save that comment. I started reading it because I learned that the movie's coming out this month, at the end of this month, and I will be reviewing it for this podcast. But I, I want to do a mashup episode um, to compare the book to the movie. Or, yeah, it is a movie, I think. He's also coming out with a series. So, Grady Hendrix is just in his bag this year, and I'm so happy for him because he truly is a great author, and I think that he writes with great intentions. And so, it's just it's great to see all of these different adaptations coming out, uh, rewarding him for his, his great authorship. So, yeah, I guess we will just get right into it. That's a great segue because this week's book that we are talking about is... Uh, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. This is by Grady Hendrix, and it came out in the year 2020, I believe. Um, and I read it actually a few months back. I want to say at the beginning of summer I read it. And so this is a long overdue uh, episode on it. But I... I just felt like it fit right in with what Sunday's episode was about. And I just, you know, keep the vampire thing going, right? First, before I get into the real spoilers, I just want to give a, a general sort of um, review and perspective on it for those of you who have not yet read it but don't want it to be spoiled. I'm not going to lie to you. There's not quite... There's not a lot to be spoiled about this book. It's similar to The Invitation, which I refer to a lot um, in the notes that I have here. Just how similar the this book and The Invitation are in terms of plot and narrative. But yeah, um, it's a vampire book. It's pretty self-explanatory. I was reading an interview with Grady Hendrix. It was an interview with NPR, and it was back in 2020 when the book was uh, initially released. And they were just talking about, you know, his inspiration and um, just kind of where he got the idea for certain aspects of the book. And this book deals a lot with gender roles, privilege, race, and familial structure. And they intersect a lot within this book and so it was really interesting to see just the way that they play of you know how they how they play to the narrative and to the characters so in this interview Grady Hendrix was talking about how 
the Southern Book Club is kind of like an ode to my best friend's exorcism. They take place in the same neighborhood. Um, my best friend's exorcism takes place in the 80s, whereas the Southern Book Club takes place in the 90s. I would say late 80s to early and mid 90s because the way that the book is structured is um, you start off in like 1980 something and then by the end of the book you're in like 1997 and so you see just kind of like all of this taking place over a large amount of time quite honestly but the fun thing about it is that both of these books take place in Grady Hendrix's hometown where he grew up in Charleston South Carolina and so he draws inspiration from what he witnessed and encountered when he was growing up in the 90s in these neighborhoods and for this book particularly he drew a lot of inspiration from his own um from his own house his own family and his own experiences growing up and for the ensemble characters that we have their lives are set in the neighborhood where Grady Hendrix grew up um, around the time that he graduated from high school and it's the first time that he's run a like had to run a book by his family before publication because so many of their stories were intertwined throughout it but Miss Mary in this book which is the grandmother um she struggles with dementia and she was very based off of his grandmother not even loosely from what i was reading it's like she is his grandmother this book has a very vivid feeling of familiarity when i was reading it i just kept thinking of all the vampire movies i've ever seen but particularly fright night and I'm so glad that NPR brought this up in their interview because I, you know, Fright Night, the movie, I'm pretty sure it came out in the 1980s. It has to do with this guy who moves into a neighborhood and he seems to be nice. He helps out around the neighborhood, but the teenage boy has a suspicion about him, but none of the adults will listen to him. And so it's really up to the teenage boy to kind of save the day. But when NPR asked Grady Hendrix about this in particular, he said that it's not inspired by Fright Night. However, both that film and this book share the same allegory in terms of what you know and what you don't know about your neighbors. You know, you can see your neighbors throughout the day smiling and acting friendly, but at night they pursue more sinister interests. And you never know because it's behind closed doors, in the shadows, behind, you know, windows and, and curtains. And I thought that was a pretty interesting point, uh, especially because that message doesn't necessarily even just apply to the vampire in the story, but it also reflects onto each character. Each character has their own struggles at home, and what brings them all together is this book club that they have. And you know, you have you have women from all different types of backgrounds, but also structures and expectations and lifestyles. And so they all come together for this book club and they all kind of explore new things through each other in this book club. And that's one of the things that I really liked about this book 
but I'll talk more in depth about it um, in a moment. Overall, I really did like this book, although I really wanted to like it better than the Final Girl Support Group. I think I hold that book so highly, and I, I, can, I can be honest and say that there's really nothing outstanding about it, you know, like it's not extraordinary in any way, but I like Grady Hendrix as an author, and I just love the subject of the book and the way that it's written. I wanted to like this book better because I love vampire fiction so much. I love, I mean, I ranted and raved about vampires in my last episode. I literally bring up Twilight any opportunity that I see fit. So if you don't know this about me already, shame on you. But I thought that I really would like it so much more than I did. It was a fun read and it was fun to see how this large group of women interacted with each other. Very similar to the Final Girl Support Group where you have this large group of women and they all have their own different conflicts and troubles and and things going on but they have one commonality and in the end you know they all work together to solve the conflict of the narrative and so it's so cool to see just the different kind of like the similarities within Grady Hendrix's books I haven't read books from the same author very often I think the last author that I probably read religiously was Sarah Dessen but that was in middle school but even with her she uses the same town or the same the same kind of like area within her stories and so there's kind of that familiarity as well when they refer to a certain restaurant it's like oh well that restaurant was in this other book when they refer to a certain high school it's like oh my gosh this character went to the same high school but of course it was you know in a different time so it's it's fun to just make those small little connections and I'm seeing that more and more as I read more Grady Hendrix books However, with this book, the the main thing that I had trouble with was how it just had a very slow start and I really it didn't really draw my attention until about the last one third of the story. And there also just wasn't much of a twist to be like <gasps> oh my gosh, no, we thought this this whole time and it was, and we were wrong. It wasn't anything like that. It was very straightforward. And similar to the invitation, like I was talking about in Sunday's episode, that's how I felt with this one as well. So those were, you know, that's why I didn't like it as much as I wanted to, but it was still a fun book to read, and I loved seeing Grady Hendrix's idea of a vampire because the description is definitely not your conventional vampire. I'm very excited because this book is being turned into a limited series, I believe, on Amazon, so... I'm glad that I watched it ahead of time. I didn't even know that it was in production because I was looking up 
interviews and just like different kind of information that I could gather on this book and that's what came up and I couldn't believe it I was so excited but they according to what I read which was last updated in I think June or July um, they don't have a cast yet so hopefully it all works out and we will be seeing it in the next year or two now we're gonna start getting into the spoilers so if you have not yet read this book now would be the time to click off it's been great having you (laughs) and i hope to see you next episode but get to reading this book once you have come back i'll be here waiting for you warm seat great snack ready to dive in For all those of you who don't care about being spoiled or have already read it or are just here to listen, it's great to have you still, and I'm very excited to take you on this journey. (laughs) I sound like a retreat guide or something. In this book, there are a lot of themes that play at hand. I mentioned them a little bit before, but I can get into depth about them because we can spoil stuff. The narrative had this intersection of race gender and privilege throughout it with the introduction of black characters though they weren't a part of the main ensemble they still played a major role into the story's development um you also had just the idea of gender also gender roles especially in terms of a familial familial structure (laughs) and then privilege which also kind of plays into that race but also plays into that gender so it's you know there's the intersection of privilege with both race and gender and so that's one of the things that I really liked about this book it also shows up in the final girl support group and hearing Grady Hendrix just kind of talk about it in his NPR interview um, you can tell that he wants to depict these things in terms of like as a way of educating and kind of shining a light on them and I think it's really cool the way that he does that in this story in particular he uses the vampire as a way of showing the um, racial inequalities and lack of awareness I would say that's the best way I can put it Um, so the way that this town and the setting of the story are structured you have the nice suburban area which is mount pleasant and i can't think of the exact like suburbia that they're in um but you know they have the nice white picket fence um southern houses beautiful expensive and that's where our main women live you know they're able to walk to each other's houses whatever and then the black people that show up in this book live out in the middle of nowhere you have to kind of like take a dirt road to get to it and it's all trailers and it's just not very well kept and maintained when we have this vampire james whatever his name is um he decides to feed off of poor black children because he thinks that no one will care or notice so you know you have all of these black children going missing and the only reason that patricia knows that this is happening is because of the nurse that's taking care of her mother-in-law 
then all of a sudden, you know, all of these children are going missing, but then all of a sudden it is the mother-in-law's caretaker's son that goes missing, I'm pretty sure. I want to say that that's, that's who goes missing that really kind of sparks this realization in Patricia because there's this rumor that goes around in the black neighborhood where he's he's like the boogeyman of some sort right and he lures children into the woods and the children go to meet him and then you know he harms them in some way and then they send them back all just completely delirious and so they think it's drugs or they think it's um molestation you know all of these different real world problems and that's why when Patricia tries to sit here and say James is the one who is doing this they're like no these kids are just on drugs or these kids you know it's not it's not James and it's not a vampire that's crazy it's just a man who is into kids which is not any better at all miss green um first works with patricia and her family and then whenever miss mary dies then she is taken in by one of her neighbors who's also in the book club she starts cleaning there one thing that grady hendrix said in terms of you know the the situation with miss green and the children in her neighborhood and everything like that he said that james doesn't look deeper and realize that in a lot of ways, at our best, moms care about kids no matter whose they are. And that's what culminates at the very end. Not, yeah, at the very end, I would say, while I said that the book club is what brings these women together, at the end, what truly brings them together is motherhood. And I think that it makes a very beautiful statement in terms of the way that we unify and the things that unify us in general in the npr interview they kind of make a statement um that says patricia and the other women in her neighborhood are kind of insulated from the problems that occur in their town meaning the the racism and the police's like the police forces just complete lack of action when they learn that all these kids are going missing sure they'll do one search party but it doesn't go beyond that or you know your child's only been missing for 24 hours give it 48 hours stuff like that that's just you know that had it been a white child a bigger deal would have been made about it so patricia notices this and there's a part in the book where she kind of realizes if her and her white privileged friends start to make more of a noise about this it'll get more attention in which i'm pretty sure it works and it does um and i think that also that also has a message with within it just about the privilege and and these things are just so they're so subtle that as you're reading you're kind of just like okay okay but then you you really do just consider the way that it manipulates the story and the characters and you give yourself time to piece it all together and think okay no like 
I know what this is. I know what this means. I know what this is trying to say to me. And while there's the privilege of race and, you know, the white privilege against the unprivileged experience of black people, you also have the privilege of being a man versus the lack of privilege as a woman. And that shows in this book as well when it comes to the dynamics between the marriages with these women so you know their husbands are successful they're the the breadwinners they bring home the money but the women stay home all day and they cook and they clean and they um, keep the house running and the kids fed and the kids to school and back from school to soccer practice from soccer practice and then there's a certain point in the book I'm pretty sure it's actually at the end maybe where Patricia leaves her husband and tries to make it on her own, which eventually she does, but it doesn't leave out the details of her struggling to get on her own two feet at first. Now, I I want to say that this part of the narrative was inspired by just the lack of privilege of being a woman before, what would you say... 2000 (laughs) um there was a point in time where women couldn't get credit cards there was a point in time where women couldn't buy houses have jobs even wear pants and so in this time when we're meeting Patricia and her family it's not so much that they can't get all of these things but it's just so much harder especially when you don't have a college degree And Grady Hendrix talks about this in the same interview where he explains, you know, when he was at a certain age, his parents got divorced. And because his mother didn't have a college degree, because at the time that she was growing up, her family didn't think that a woman needed to go to college. She struggled trying to make it on her own without that college degree. And that was taken and kind of infused into Patricia's character and and her character development. And I think that it's there's there's so much cultural relevance in this story in terms of the nineties. Even in, you know, the same interview he talks about how People like to think that nothing big happened in the 90s. You know, in the 80s, you had the war on drugs and you had certain, like, political movements and moments and just pop culture moments. But in the 90s, people just are kind of like, it was just the 90s. Among the pop culture moments of the 90s and the introduction of certain things that really made an impact on society as we know it, um, you still had the lasting effects of the previous decades. And so you see that with Patricia's character and her marriage and just the way that she's been living her life. The reason why all of this started was because she was bored. She was a bored housewife. And there was one review that I read where they talked about how it was just kind of like she was bored for no reason. They had said that her boredom was really just a plot device to drive the story to the point that Grady Hendrix wanted to make with it. But I feel like that is completely dismissing 
the context of gender roles and, you know, a woman's expectations in a marriage. It can be so easy to sit back, look at someone's life as a housewife and say, how could she be bored? How could she be upset? Her like she gets her bills paid for her. She all she has to do is this. All she has to do is that she doesn't have to work. She just sits at home all day. Let's be real here. <laughs> Let's be real because it's it's just not you can't simplify it that way. And even Grady Hendrix does a job of highlighting all of the things that stay-at-home moms did in the 90s. You know, he even explains that he wanted to write about how he went from knowing them as a kid, when they seemed like a bunch of lightweight nobodies, to how he got to know them as adults, when he learned that they had dealt with all the ugly and difficult stuff so the rest of us wouldn't have to deal with it. Us meaning him, his siblings, his friends, everything like that. Housewives... I think the most important part of their role in a family and a household is curating a family-friendly environment. I mean that to say. Any fights, any conflicts, they are typically the mediators of them. You know, you get into a fight with your dad and your mom will try to soothe it over with you and him and bring you all together and you know try to soften the blow if your dad is upset with you and any financial burdens any family crises crises they try to soften them to you so that you're just not as emotionally distressed by everything going on and it's something that we don't see as children because our minds are just so captivated by by other stuff sports friends school you know whatever and when you become an adult and you really just understand how much weight they were taking off of everyone else just to keep peace just to keep love and light it really changes your perspective on top of cleaning the house cleaning up after everybody else cooking cooking meals picking you up from school so to to say that how can Patricia Campbell be bored? How can she I just feel like is such a it's so tone deaf of that person who wrote that review, which I don't even remember what review it was, who did it, where it where you could find it cuz I just like it was just in passing that I read it. But yeah, I mean, I am a believer in that being a housewife is a job and yeah, you get paid in a different type of currency, but it's still a job nonetheless. I, you know, I went on a little bit of a tangent, but we'll get back on topic because Patricia was getting bored of her everyday routine. And I think that a lot of us can relate to things just becoming mundane to where you're just kind of like, okay, I want to change. Most of the time, that's why people go on vacation is because your daily routine is getting boring and you want more excitement. And I don't think that's shameful of anyone. However, when Patricia, and I think the very first kind of attempt of exploring excitement was introducing a new book to the book club because they were reading 
classic books, right? Classic, I'm not going to say boring, but just kind of like books that you would read in high school for an assignment. They weren't reading things that they actually wanted, things that were actually exciting. And so Patricia introduced them to one book. I think it might have been a true crime book because they read a lot of true crime books. When she first introduced it, it didn't get a good amount of praise they lost some book club members but i mean hey you know she was just curating the crowd that's all the exploration for excitement then got a little bit more extravagant in terms of she started noticing things about james that was just a little off and she was trying to dig more into it and trying to, you know, help Mrs. Green and the children um, going missing and, you know, trying to solve all these things while reading all these true crime books. And the other women in her neighborhood, a part of the book club, were just kind of like, you know, I think these true crime books are getting to your head. You should just stick to your duties as a housewife. You know, it's just so much simpler that way. And she's like, this is not what I wanted my life to be. <laughs> I I didn't just want to sit home and do the same thing every single day, especially for a man that doesn't even really appreciate me and what I do. You know, she, it's revealed that he's having affairs, but that it's been going on for a while and she just kind of lets it slide because I think she she realizes what all Carter does for her and her family and she's just kind of like it's something that I have to put up with so that I can get all of this which is such an unfair way of looking at it speaking of Carter um yeah if I were to ever see that man in the streets or in a boxing ring I'm gonna have a go at him because he is the most disrespectful distasteful degrading ugly character I've ever read I'm not gonna say ever read but he angered me (laughs) because I think that he was just a he was a great display of a terrible husband like if you if you're taking a marriage class right and you're talking about what would make a good wife would make a good husband would make a bad wife would make a bad husband carter would be a perfect example for a bad husband because similar to that review i was just talking about he sees patricia's job mm, task as a housewife as lucky as something to cherish as something simple you know he thinks that he's truly putting in the hard work He's truly carrying this family on his back. But is that really the truth? No. Are they pulling equal weights? Maybe. But Patricia is maybe carrying like a pound heavier. Um, Especially after Miss Mary moves in and she like also has to take care of her to some extent. Yeah, no. Patricia got Carter beat. Maybe by a landslide, but she still got him beat. But it's him thinking that he has the final say. It's his word over anybody else's. He doesn't listen to Patricia and her concerns. 
And his main motivation in this entire book, once he meets James, like he only really cares about the monetary gain that he's getting from him. He, when, when Patricia's like, you know, I think James is doing this. I think James is a bad influence. I don't want James around the kids. Da, 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 da. And he's like, look at all that he's done for us. First of all, he calls him Jim. I don't know how you get Jim from James, but it's the same as Richard and Dick. I don't get, I don't get it. If there's one thing, it's that I don't, that I'll never understand. It's that. But he's like, look at all that Jim has done for us. And she's like, I literally do not care. Our kids are in danger. I mean, this was before she found out what that sick bastard was doing to her daughter. But still, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's that's before that. They not, I don't even think the husbands ever believe their wives in terms of James. I think that the wives just end up killing James and acting like he moved away and everybody just moved on. But the scene where all of the husbands sat their wives down together and lectured them like they were children, I I wanted to scream. I wanted to... I was strangling the book. I was so upset. Because... They were just treating them like they were so beneath them. Like maybe their lack of college education was just, it was just like, oh, what you're saying is nonsense because you don't have a college degree. You're just a stay-at-home wife. You need to just stick to cleaning the dishes. And it was just so, oh, wow. I, I hated it. (laughs) Which means Grady Hendrix did a great job. He did exactly what he needed to do. But I was just so angry. But when NPR asked him about his portrayal of men, because they said it almost seems like in this book, they are almost no better than the evil itself, which is James. And he said his intention wasn't to portray the men as an equal to the evil, but more so to the patriarchy that men participate in, which is valid, sure. And I think that says a lot, especially when all of these men kind of acted the same, just in terms of none of them believed their wives. They just kind of, they went on their men trips and... They hung out together and they drank together and they had affairs together and whatnot. But I also feel like that takes away individual responsibility of each man as well. Because yeah, the patriarchy exists. It still exists to this day. If a man walks around acting a certain way towards women and is like, it's not my fault, it's the patriarchy. No no it's not (laughs) like you can't just be disrespectful to women to your girlfriend to your wife and then blame it on the patriarchy you know what i'm saying and of course the 90s it was a different time but i'm also sure there were men in the 90s who understood what the patriarchy was and made an effort to go against it just like there are today probably fewer of them then but still the chance is there 
there are a lot more points that can be made about um, the way that Grady Hendrix uses race, gender, and privilege throughout this book because there are so many great moments and conversations and context that is used in this book. But to save time, I'm not going to go through all of them. Of course, if you've already read it, then you, you know, you, you know, you know what those moments are. They were great moments. Now, moving on to my next like, which I only did three just because I felt like I had a lot to talk about and I didn't want to drag this out. So there's only three. This, similar to The Invitation, did not romanticize vampires at all. If anything, it was actually the absolute opposite. With The Invitation, they romanticized the male character before he was a vampire. Once he revealed himself as a vampire, then you're like, okay. And then he's all of a sudden this evil person. But before that, as he's luring her in, he's just a normal person. And he, you know, it's a romantic relationship between them. Had me blushed in the movie theater. But with this book, there is absolutely no romanticization. Any moment that was charismatic of James, um, from Patricia's point of view, it had to be at the very beginning. And it didn't last long because I know that even, even if she wasn't, like, even if she wasn't super suspicious of James, there was still just something off about him. And she wasn't welcoming him with open arms immediately. Especially after she like went over to his house and saw the way that he was and everything like that. I thought that it was going to go in the direction of they were going to have an affair and then she's going to learn that he was a vampire. And so you would still have that romanticization aspect to it. But that didn't even happen until later in the book. Like, at the very end, their plan of murdering him was to seduce him first. Which is smart, you know, using the patriarchy for your in your favor. Good for you. Um, but there was no moment of, like, this man is good, he's great, he's... No, when you first meet him, he's, like, sickly. And then after that, he's still just kind of like this mysterious person with signs pointing to him as being a root cause for all these kids disappearing. And then the more that he grows suspicious of Patricia, who is suspicious of him, then he reveals more of that vampire character, you know, the evil in him. And he threatens her, and he blackmails her, and they they made him even more into a villain by making him out to have modern day evil characteristics. And I say that to mean he was racist and he was a pedophile. Those are the two worst things you could be in this day and age. I must say, um, honestly, yeah, I'm not gonna re- I'm not gonna redact that. He was feeding off of black children because he didn't think people would care. And then he started seducing and feeding off of Patricia's teenage daughter. Like, first of all, he watched her grow up from a certain point. Like, he was in their lives for somewhere between two and four years. So you watched this child grow 
from one age to the next, and now you're naked in her bed. That's weird. That is weird. Even if you weren't a vampire, you would still be weird, and you would still deserve what you got. So, yeah. And, you know, it's one thing to just say something's evil because it's supernatural, and it's beyond our understanding. But on top of that, you are also evil in the context of morality. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you got me there. So I do think that Grady Hendrix um, crafted this vampire, both in the context of being a vampire, but also just being evil. Well, because the description of this vampire was so crazy like I I don't it was so okay when the first description that you read of James um and I'm pretty sure it's when Patricia finds him feeding on one of the black children um like he has this long thing that comes out of his mouth like a straw And he uses that to suck on people's blood. He doesn't suck on people's blood with teeth and with his mouth and his lips on their neck and stuff. No. He has this, he has this long dagger that just pierces somebody straight from his, straight from his throat. And that is so crazy to me. That's so weird. And I don't think I've ever seen a vampire like that. Um, maybe it's just in a vampire movie that I have yet to see, but yeah, that was insane, but it it was nice to see, you know, it also goes back to what I was saying in the invitation in terms of just, you know, making vampires horrific again, Grady Hendrix could have added the affair aspect to this movie, like how I expected it was going to turn. Um, and it would have shown that though this person is evil, he's still charismatic. Yeah, he was charismatic to the men, but that's because I think there's something to say about all of these men not believing their wives, um, making their wives, you know, be housewives, stay at home, everything like that, and be so drawn to a man who is giving them monetary value and societal power but besides that you know I don't none of the women really were drawn to him like that they were only really influenced by their husbands to interact with him be cordial with him but only the men were really like on him like it was it was almost it was almost erotic the way that they were on him (laughs) but yeah, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the uniqueness of this fictional vampire. I also enjoyed the ensemble of women, um, like how the final girl support group was. And, uh, you know, I actually, what I said before in terms of how, you know, their commonality was the book club, but then in the end it was their motherhood. I literally didn't even think about it until I was, I'm sitting here recording this podcast and I'm talking about it and I'm like, wow, no, because that's right. That is so correct. They're all mothers. They're all fighting for, like, 
what is motivating them the most is the safety of their children and others' children. And I think that's powerful. <laughs> now, on to my dislikes, because that was all my likes. On my dislikes, I already said there wasn't much momentum until the last one-third of the book. And that's really what was the most upsetting I have a habit of forcing myself to read through something until I get interested in it. And that's why, like, my do not finish or my did not finish list is very, very short because I always try to make myself finish a book. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of the books that I have forced myself to finish have been good. I haven't been disappointed and I enjoyed them. Um, but still, the fact that I had to read even halfway through this book before I was really glued to it was a little upsetting. The Final Girl Support Group, I was hooked from the first moment. And with this book, it was like, okay... Another year passed, and we're still just kind of doing the same thing. When are we going to kill this man? Similar to the invitation, once again, he was suspected of being a vampire by Patricia, and that's exactly what he was. Of course, at first, she thought he was just a child molester. Not just a child molester, but she didn't think it was anything supernatural, because why would that be your first thought? However, it wasn't like, oh no, it's not it's not him who's the vampire, it's your husband. And it's like, oh, it's been under my nose this whole time. No, it was like, he was a vampire. And no, he wasn't the conventional idea of what a vampire was, but I did wish that there was just a bigger gotcha moment. I think maybe part of that was the scene where he was with the daughter in her bed, because that was... Oh my gosh, no. That was traumatizing. Not not super traumatizing. But I remember reading it and just kind of pausing and like audibly gasping because, wow, who would have thought? He just seemed so... Because he would, he was constantly saying like, Patricia, I could, I could treat you and your family better than Carter. I could be the man that your family needs. First of all, Carter's your friend. Second of all, why would I let a vampire be the head of a household, of my household, of my human household? I mean, me personally, yes. Maybe not James, because James is a pedophile and a racist. But any other vampire, yeah. And of course, my last dislike, I did want it to be better than the final girl support group. I wanted it to be my new favorite vampire book, but I was just disappointed um, yeah, there's not much else to say on that matter. I will say I, I do love this book, but not enough, <laughs> not as much as I want to, and not enough to be here, like to, to rave about it. Just like I said, with the invitation everything goes back to that episode and I did this on purpose because if you have not listened to that episode but you keep hearing me refer to it maybe just maybe you should give it a listen but I'm not gonna force you to I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna hold your hand do what you, do what you gotta do um I, I appreciate your support nonetheless so glad you're still here with us <laughs> but 
would I recommend this book? Of course. I always recommend stuff. Even if I didn't like it, I'm going to recommend it because no, I didn't like it, but you might like it. It might be different from what you've consumed before. And if not, it, it still just might provide you with something that you didn't have before. And I think that's the magic and power of media, particularly fiction media fictional media anyways whatever on goodreads i rated this book a four out of five stars on goodreads which you can click in the show notes and see my profile and all of my reviews i very much hope that you do decide to pick this book up whether you rent it from the library so you don't have to spend money on it or you do buy it because you just love collecting books like me but also support your local libraries. Come on. However you do choose to read this book and where you get it from, I do hope that you enjoy it to some degree. And I very much appreciate you all for sticking around, listening to this episode, and um, trusting me with these reviews. Because it does say something. I see when people listen to my episodes, and I'm very, very appreciative of you all. So... Thank you for your continuing support and trust. I can't say what the next book is that I'll be reviewing. It probably will be My Best Friend's Exorcism, but I can't say that for sure. However, you can stay up to date on my Instagram at the Unbound Cinefem Pod, on Twitter at Unbound Cinefem, and then, of course, my Goodreads is at Avery C-O-F. Make sure that you follow me, stay updated. Um, If you could, definitely leave a review for my podcast. It would mean a lot. Just even if you click the little stars and rated it, it would mean so much because I definitely want to know if you enjoy this podcast. And of course, you can always contact me on my social medias um, to give suggestions. Let me know what you like about the show, even what you don't like, because I want to be better and I want to reach larger audiences and really grow this community. So yeah, anyways, thank you for tuning in and I hope to catch you next episode.